0: Welcome to the Voice of Family Business on Capitol Hill. It's great to have you. With each podcast from Family Enterprise USA, we bring you the latest news, expert opinions, and insights affecting the country's largest employer, the American family business. This podcast is sponsored by Arbach Commercial Realty Corporation, proud to support America's family businesses and family offices. If you like this series, please remember to subscribe and sign up for the alerts as future shows are posted wherever you download your podcasts. In this episode, we bring you a timely discussion between Family Enterprise USA's Pat Soldano and two leading political observers and Capitol Hill experts, Brandon Roman and Aubrey Rothrock of the influential Washington, D.C. law and lobbying firm Squire Patton Box. Pat discusses the just completed midterm elections and how they'll affect tax policies, change the political stage, and impact day-to-day economics for family businesses.
1: So welcome to today's podcast. I'm Pat Soldano, president of Family Enterprise USA and Policy and Taxation Group. So we advocate for general- generationally owned family businesses across the nation, all sizes, all industry, and their lifetime of savings. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the just completed midterm election results. I'm here with my two good friends and associates of mine, Brandon Ramon and Aubrey Rothrock, both from the prestigious law firm of Squire Patton Boggs in Washington, D.C. They're both very knowledgeable about the political scene, and they are absolutely insiders. So Brandon is going to cover the Democratic side of the aisle, and Aubrey will cover the Republican side of the aisle. Um, But I'm sure we're going to have some overlap, um, because both of them know both sides of the aisle. And I'm going to ask the questions, and I'm going to attempt to moderate uh, as we go through this podcast. So let me give you a little background on both Aubrey and Brandon. So Aubrey Rothrock is a senior partner in the political policy group of Squire, Patton, Boggs. He's a member of the firm's global board of directors. Aubrey has extensive experience in providing strategic counsel to privately held business interests in the area of tax and regulatory affairs and has brought his expertise to every significant piece of federal estate tax reform legislation enacted over the past two decades. Brandon Ramon is a partner in the public policy group of Squire, Pat, and Boggs and assists clients in developing comprehensive strategies to further their legislative and regulatory interests before Congress' relevant congressional committees, and various regulatory agencies. He's played a key role in the development of tax policies in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, as well as the Inflation Reduction Act that just passed. And he assists clients with implementation of and compliance with regulatory implementation of these provisions. So let's just get right into it. Um, We we do have a lot to cover. Um, The elections are not all over, as we know. But I guess the best place to start is... Let's talk about what happened. And, Aubrey, I'm going to start with you. Uh, what happened on the Republican side and and how did they fare overall uh, in both the House and the Senate?
2: Pat, thank you so much for that kind introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you from a, um, a, a rainy Friday here in the nation's capital. So, Pat, I think the major takeaway from this midterm election is the Republican red wave that simply never materialized. Earlier in the year, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy predicted somewhere between a 50 and 60 seat pickup for the Republicans. That prediction is obviously not aged well. Uh, While the Republicans do appear to be headed to a very narrow majority in the House, the majority will be as slim as any in history that the Republicans have governed under. So that's something to keep in mind as as we look into uh, the next Congress. Control of the Senate, as you indicated, Pat, is undecided. Um, The races to watch are now in Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia. Uh, I will say that, you know, Arizona hasn't been called yet, although incumbent Democrat Senator Mark Kelly is leading Republican Blake Masters handily at the moment. And I think most commentators expect that race uh, to go the Democrat way. So, of course, it's now Georgia and Nevada where the real drama is. Uh, In Georgia, incumbent Democrat uh, Raphael Warnick has a razor-thin lead over Republican challenger Herschel Walker. They have close to 98% of that vote in, and under Georgia law, because neither candidate has reached the 50% threshold, there will be a, um, a, a high-profile runoff in that state uh, on December 6. This has not been formally called, but I think it's, it's virtually a certainty at this stage. So once again, Georgia will become the center of the political universe between now and December. And if Senate control comes down to this one race, you can imagine how both parties will spend staggering amounts of money uh, to to make sure that outcome goes their way. Uh, Let's look at Nevada just briefly. Republican challenger Adam Laxall is leading Democrat incumbent Senator Catherine Cortez Masto by about 20,000 votes, but only 75 percent of the vote is in. That really could go either way. There was just a report literally an hour ago that Masto has has closed that that gap. So that that is, is a, a, a state that everyone is watching very, very carefully. Historically, the president parties really suffers during a midterm election as voters seek to vent against the party in power. And Pat, as you know, at this stage, there's a lot to vent against. You have hyperinflationary pressures that have increased the prices for energy, food, and basic services. A major bellwether being the price of gas at the pump. In many states, it's over $5.00. But again, I think some of the other issues, and I'll let Brandon talk to to this in a a second, Uh, I think there was an expectation that this would uh, inure to the benefit of the Republicans, but that simply did not happen. Um, So we now have narrow majorities in both chambers regardless of what ultimately happens, and neither party will have the 60-vote supermajority in the Senate. So you're going to look at legislative outcomes that will have to have bipartisanship going into the next Congress. Uh, So with that, I'll let Brandon talk a little bit about the Democrats'
1: Well, before we before we go there, I'm going to go a little off script here because I think there's another real important dynamic playing in the House and the Republican Party, Aubrey, and that is who's going to be the Speaker. Um, we know that the Freedom Caucus is uh, probably has a stronghold right now uh, in terms of that that who's that decision, and so maybe you could talk a little bit about the dilemma right now that's happening around Kevin McCarthy becoming speaker of the House and the impact of this Freedom Caucus
2: absolutely Pat and again that that negotiation and that process is very fluid and in fact the Republican will have leadership meetings and and decisions next week and I can assure you that that uh, leader McCarthy is making plenty of phone calls looking to cut deals trying to get as many commitments To make sure that his speakership is assured. Now, of course, he won't formally become speaker if he does until January of next year. But we should know by the end of November uh, if he's going to be able to be the presumptive nominee or if there will be a challenge from some of the more conservative elements of the Freedom Caucus. But again, those those conversations and discussions are ongoing and are very fluid, but we should know more next week. Clearly, the, the lack of performance among the Republicans in the midterms in the House has certainly lessened his leverage and will likely result in some challenges for his leadership. Uh, I think it's too early to tell, though, whether or not these challenges will ultimately be successful.
1: Yeah, that's, that's very helpful information. Um, I think it's, again, a surprise, but all these elections lately seem to be surprises. Uh, so Brandon, we're going to turn to you now. Let's, let's talk about the Democrats and, and your view on you know what happened in this election.
3: Well, yeah, Pat, if you could see me right now, you'd see the smile across my face because I, I, as I told Aubrey earlier, when I went every election since 2016, I'd go into it with a worst-case scenario mentality because I think nobody certainly expected uh, the outcome of 2016. Polls are not always accurate, and I think this is a reflection of that. I think Democrats certainly did a, a great job of playing defense. You know, when I looked at the numbers, it seems, as Aubrey mentioned earlier, in terms of majorities for Democrats, this is the least number of seats lost for the Democrats in a midterm election with the Democrat at the helm at the White House in 40 years. So, you know, I think that there's a couple of reasons for that. As Aubrey and I talked about earlier, uh, I think candidates really matter. So, Democrats, you know, part of it is their policy positions and the way that they were able to focus on uh, a a woman's woman's right to choose and, you know, reproductive health care rights. But also part of it was simply that many of the Republican candidates, especially in the Senate, were not particularly strong and you know made some gaps that really, I think, combined with uh, the momentum in certain areas with the Democrats' positions, kind of helped push us over the edge, what I think will help push us over the edge in the Senate in particular, because the fact that we are now three days away out of the election and we can't even confirm yet that there's a majority for the House Republicans, to me, is just astonishing. And then, as Aubrey mentioned earlier, with regard to the Senate, I think if you look at Nevada with the the votes coming in, the numbers that are outstanding and the percentages and ratios that are likely to come in for Cortez Masto, it's possible that over the weekend or early next week, we may be able to know that Nevada would be, you know, what direction Nevada is going to go. And if it does ultimately go to Cortez Masto and the lead holds for Kelly in Arizona, we won't even need to wait until December six for the Georgia runoff because Democrats will maintain at least a 50, 50 seat uh, vote in the Senate, and with the Vice President being the tie breaking vote, you know again they'll contain, maintain control. And I think again, as Aubrey alluded to, with the House Republicans, it certainly is going to be a much slimmer majority than we had anticipated. So overall, I think it was a great night for the Democrats. Uh, all things considered.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's a good assessment, uh, Brandon. And interesting, I was. Uh, on a call yesterday of No Labels, the organization No Labels, Frank Luntz was presenting. And one of the things he mentioned is what we learned in this election is, dem- is democracy is just as important as the economy. So um, I think that's a lesson learned by both parties. So let's talk about, uh, we've all, the three of us have worked on tax and economic policy for families and family businesses and family offices now for decades. Um, and. Let's just talk at kind of a 30,000-foot level. What do you expect around policies, economic tax policies, that family businesses, uh, let's start with family businesses, should really be concerned about? And, uh, and Aubrey, I'll start with you.
2: Yes, thanks, Pat. Again, I think <laughs> going into calendar year 23 in a new Congress and the last two years of Biden's first term— I think the family business community is going to have to be in a defensive posture on across a number of fronts. So I I do think the Biden administration will view the positive electoral outcome as a mandate of sorts. So the Biden-Harris administration in the first quarter of next year will release its FY24 budget proposals. If history is any god, those proposals will include a number of revenue offsets in the estate gift tax area that will be not well received by the family business community. Uh, Of course, the good news there is that Republican control of the House, if that does ultimately occur. A lot of these legislative proposals will be dead on arrival. Uh, But again, it's fully anticipated that the Biden administration will try to revive this notion of some sort of annual billionaire's tax on the unrealized appreciation per year in certain assets. That was discounted when it was originally tabled, but that could come back. Uh, Pat, I I reported that just last week the Treasury released its priority guidance plan, uh, which includes a number of regulatory projects in the estate and gift tax area. Uh, Fortunately, the Section 2704 project that dealt with marketability and and, uh, minority discount valuations was not included. Uh, That built upon the success when we had that regulation tabled several years ago. But again, I think if the Biden administration cannot accomplish what they'd like to legislatively, they will use the Treasury and the regulatory function to try to advance uh, proposals to address what they perceive as loopholes and addressing the wealth gap. So again, I think going forward... As we've done to date, we're going to have to be very successful in playing defense against frontal assaults on family businesses.
1: Yeah, and what I would ask, um, Brandon, is this. We've worked with a lot of Democrats in in these last two years uh, because, quite frankly, they're in control. And, you know, I think that they understand eventually when you talk to them about – uh, what family businesses do in this country, the jobs they generate, 59% of them, and the GDP they generate, 54% of them, and the giving that they do to their communities, you know, they, they understand. But some of the tax and economic proposals that they have uh, suggested, you know, would be destructive to family businesses. And so, Brandon, what's your view on what what what's possible? What can we possibly get done? You've been on these calls with me, um, what do you think, realistically, the Democrats will, will provide us that will help us to run our businesses better?
3: Well, Pat, I think one of the key takeaways you saw from the election is, you know, the economy, inflation, the economic issues that are facing Americans on a day-to-day basis are clearly one of the top priorities that influences how they decide to vote. You know, while the Democrats went into the election really kind of with the boom of the decision back in June on Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs case, You know, that gave some momentum, but there were still a lot of these economic policies that people said, well, you know, when they woke up in the morning and the cost of their groceries were more expensive, the cost cost of gas was more expensive. That impacts them every day. So I think Democrats are going to have to be willing to come to the table and look at ways that they can work with Republicans, because regardless of who ultimately takes control of the chambers, there's not going to be any significant tax policy enacted this year that's going to be on the extreme for either side. So, you know, the, they're looking ahead to 2025 when the individual tax cuts expire. Democrats you know, have their position on certain aspects of those, as you well know, Pat, with regard to you know the, the estate tax exemption, for example. But there's going to have to be some negotiating on certain of those issues across the next several years. So from a family business perspective, I think the most important thing, you know, Aubrey mentioned defense, and I'd say defense is definitely a key, but I think education is also a key coming and speaking and telling your stories to lawmakers and explaining to them how policies are impacting your business and not just you as the family, but the employees that you have and the good that you're doing in your communities, really kind of giving a face to, uh, you know, family business here in Washington, I think is key. And we've seen that actually have an impact and influence folks and have people be more willing to engage. And for example, as part of the Build Back Better Act as they were negotiating, what became the Inflation Reduction Act, It was through some of these kind of moderate Democrats that were willing to hear our stories that we did not have you know, stepped up in basis um, eliminated, that we did not have um, some of the changes to to grantor trust. All these things that were proposed and kind of very much progressive, far more to the left policies ultimately weren't enacted so that kind of playing defense in education is gonna continue to be key.
1: Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that, Brandon. I mean, it was hard fought, but at the end of the day, there were 10 provisions in that Build Back Better Act that would have been very destructive to families and family businesses. And, and to your point, the Democrats were reasonable, they did listen, and they were eventually pulled out of both the House and the Senate bill. So I agree with you. So to that point of working together, um, what do you see, what do you both see in this lame duck session? And maybe you both have the same answer, but um, do you see, what do you see getting done in the lame duck based on what, what we know today?
2: So, well, clearly, the, the pressing priority for uh, the remaining months of this Congress is the fiscal year 2023 appropriations. Uh, right now, the, the, the federal government is only funded through December 16th. So when they get back uh, to D.C. after they do their leadership work on, on, on both sides of the aisle, they're going to have to address the FY 2023 appropriations. Uh, I, I, I don't think there's going to be an appetite for both sides to threaten to shut down the government or not fund the government so i do see there there being an ultimate deal there they're also going to look at the national defense authorization act Um, those uh, negotiations have 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 been occurring throughout the year so that's also kind of a must-do piece of legislation Um, outside of that i I think it's going to be difficult to to do much more Uh, on the tax policy side there have been discussions about extending the uh, child care credit um, uh, uh, research and development expenses and a myriad of so-called tax extenders that that have expired or will expire this year. But if, depending on what happens with House control, I think the Republicans may very well say, let's kick it over to 2023 when we have the gavel and, and go from there. So I think outside of the, the funding of the federal government and, and the Defense Authorization Act, I think expectations are fairly low for our, for significant legislating for the balance of this year.
3: Yeah, I think, I think that's right, Aubrey. I, I will say the, the only other piece that, um, you know, we have heard discuss is, you know, bipartisan retirement savings reform. Uh, and I think that could also have a really big impact on family businesses because in 2019, Congress passed what's called the SECURE Act, which is the largest overhaul um, of the retirement savings system in the United States since ERISA. And so that is going to be a potential opportunity. I think it's, you know, they've got outgoing senators like Rob Portman, outgoing, a ranking member of Ways and Means Committee, Kevin Brady, who've been really big drivers of this. And so they're pursuing this legislation. It's, it's a secure 2.0 is what some are calling it, but it does a number of things, including reforms and updates to Savers Tax Credit. Um, it makes sure that student, people that are making student loans payment, payments are able to participate in their employer's retirement plan. Um, standardized retirement plans can use rollovers to make it easier for workers to save, um, and then there's also a concept that's called uh, pooled employer plans, which allows employers to come together, mid-sized, smaller employers to come together for kind of good, uh, economies of scale and cost, uh, cost benefit in that sense, um, and they're going to potentially extend that to 403b plans, which are you know educational institutions, nonprofits, and the like. So. It, it, we'll have to kind of see how things come together, but I think that that is the you know the one other potential real opportunity, and that could have an impact on family business and their their employees and how they save for retirement. In
2: that way, and that that's a good point, Brandon. That could be a very good legacy for the outgoing um, ranking minority, Kevin Brady, who obviously Pat, as you know, has been a terrific uh, supporter and champion of, of state tax issues for the family business community for many years.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm going to put both of you on the spot a little bit here and ask. Um, uh, so, Brandon, you know the Democrat leadership. There, there is some speculation that there's a possibility that uh, Pelosi and Hoyer could resign. Um, would you have thoughts on that?
3: Well, you know, there's always a possibility of a different, a bunch of different scenarios. But I think right now, it's, it's a little too soon to tell. Um, you know, Speaker Pelosi has been, you know, largely quiet as has uh, Leader Hoyer uh, and Whip Clyburn. I think we're going to have to see what the the ultimate gap in majority is between the Republicans and the Democrats. But I think if the majority—I mean, it's obviously going to be slimmer now than it was anticipated—and uh, if the lead state, if the majorities are smaller for the Republicans even than we ex- expect that they might be today, there's certainly a chance that the Speaker will stay in power and run again for Speaker. And I think there is a significant portion of the caucus that would support that. She's, you know, she's great at fundraising, and I think she also is somebody that has the experience uh, to go toe to toe with a potential Speaker McCarthy um, and navigate what will be some very interesting waters with the new Republican majority. So I certainly think don't count her out. Um, You know, if if depending upon how things shape up, if she does not run, there's some other folks in the wings. I think probably from my perspective, the leading contender is Hakeem Jeffries from uh, from New York. Uh, He has not made any types of formal announcement, has obviously grown in popularity and influence within the caucus, Um, but I think everybody's kind of waiting to see, and the elections right now, I believe, are scheduled for November 30th. So we could see a minority leader, Pelosi, or uh, we could see some new blood step
2: in. I completely agree with that. That's a great analysis. And I would also say to the extent McCarthy's stock went down, I think Pelosi's stock went up uh, with the results of, of this election being much more positive for the Democrats.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, Aubrey, so on the Republican side, obviously the important committee is Ways and Means Committee. It's where all tax and economic policy starts. Um, what's your speculation around who's going to lead that committee? I mean, there's been so three really, names yeah, thrown yeah. Out. No,
2: that That's something that we've we spent a lot of time and effort and developing relationships at the senior levels on, on the Republicans on the Ways and Means Committee. So, Pat, right now I think everyone agrees it's really a three-person race. Uh, you have Verne Buchanan uh, from Florida. Um, a, a, a business senator himself, he had a highly successful uh, automobile dealership. You have Adrian Smith, uh, Republican from Nebraska. And then finally, Jason Smith, Republican from Missouri. All three uh, of these have made um, chairman of the Ways and Means Committee or ranking minority of the Ways and Means Committee a priority. I think all of them have um, terrific history on engagement, on family business issues. We have great relationships with all three. Uh, I, I, I don't want to handicap that, but it will be one of those three gentlemen, and, and I think either uh, of those three would be terrific for our issues. So that's something that we're monitoring very carefully. And, of course, that will play out as well uh, as the Republicans come back to Washington next week and start their internal leadership uh, deliberations. Uh, the chairmanship of the Ways and Means Committee will be a principal focus. That's, uh,
1: yeah, that, that's very helpful, because obviously it's a very, very important committee. So, Brandon had mentioned earlier about the importance of family businesses telling their story, and we know that well. I've just probably done a dozen different videos with family businesses, um, recording them, putting them out on social media and off email and uh, through our database system. Uh, We really believe it's important for not only members of Congress but voters to really understand the good work that family businesses do in this country. And those stories, as Brandon alluded to, are so critically important. And we've had many, many Zoom calls in which we've done that. So in that light, as both of you know, we are helping Congress form a congressional uh, family business caucus. Um, and we're very excited about it. We hope to announce it uh, next week on our call and do a press release. And so I'd like, Brandon, to you explain a little bit about the caucus, you know, the, the purpose, the mission, uh, and, and how you expect it to operate.
3: Yeah, Pat, I'm happy to do it. And it's a caucus that's long overdue. Uh, you know, family businesses, as you mentioned, are really the drivers of the economy with the jobs that they provide and with the revenue that it generates as part of our GDP. Um, so this caucus, it's going to be bicameral, but it's going to also be bipartisan. So um, as Pat mentioned, we have had many meetings with probably well over 100 members of Congress on both sides of the aisle and in both chambers to talk about this caucus. And really the mission Um, is to represent family business in Washington by educating members about the contributions that family businesses make, creating and raising awareness in Congress about the issues that are impacting family businesses, uh, supporting a regulatory landscape that's less burdensome and promotes entrepreneurship, which we talked about today, will be particularly important, I think, over the next two years with a potential limit on what can be done on tax policy, but certainly continued work in Treasury to implement a number of outstanding provisions And then also to allow members of congress to connect with family businesses both here in dc but also within their own home uh, districts and states um so in terms of again in terms of leadership we uh, i think there's going to be as pat mentioned an announcement next week with two democratic and two republican co-chairs in the house um, and a Republican and, Senate, a Republican and Democratic co-chair in the Senate soon to be identified. But the membership would be open to basically any member of Congress who's interested in supporting and promoting family-owned businesses. And so what we anticipate, essentially, the caucus would promote throughout the year. It would have meetings throughout the year that would have also associated activities um, such as fly-ins, where we would have family, family members of businesses come to Washington to meet with their members of Congress. There'd be data that's released in in a report and other types of um, documents. There'd be potentially meetings on the Hill, internship and educational programs, um, advisory councils, um, and then other seminars and speaker series. And so I think it's really gonna be a great opportunity to have family businesses be front and center um, in an official way and to have a body of members of Congress at the ready to not only understand and start learning more about family businesses, but be there as we need them to support our interest in Washington.
1: Well, I appreciate that and I agree. Um, we're very excited about this caucus and our family business owners are excited to tell their story. Um, and before I go kind of to our final question, which, which is gonna be about, you know, what's gonna happen in 2024, I wanna backtrack a little bit and talk about um, what's possible in terms of tax and economic policies a little bit in the short term, and Aubrey, I'm going to turn to you in, in this sense. Uh, the the Tax and Job Act that was passed gave corporate America a 21% tax rate. Unfortunately, it didn't really help family businesses. Almost 80% of them operate as a pass-through entity, so they're still paying 30 to 35 37% in income tax, which is now their number one issue. And as you know, the estate tax, which is their number two issue, it has a very high exemption to be almost $13 million per person next year, but um, that is going to uh, expire at the, we mentioned earlier in 2025. What do you think? Is there any opportunity working with both parties? And, and Brandon, you can, you can comment too after Aubrey comments on making changes to either of those things to help uh, family businesses?
2: Yeah, no, Pat. Thank you for that. And, and again, I think we need to be mindful that in September of this year, uh, the Republican Party, you know, released its commitment to America, and it had essentially four pillars: the first, an economy that's strong; the second, a nation that's safe; third, a future that's built on freedom; and four, a government that's accountable. So I, I think there was some disappointment that the commitment to America was not more granular in terms of its commitment to addressing. The potential of expiring tax cuts and, and the helpful uh, reductions that were achieved uh, during the Trump administration. And I think that's our challenge. I think we need to work through through our, our advocacy channels to make sure that the Republican leadership understands that tax policy should be front and center as we go into the new Congress. I think it's it's fair to say that the the, the release of this strategy was more of a, a, a political uh, organizational document and maybe not what they view as priorities in the next congress because i think maybe they thought tax was not something they wanted to have a leading edge on going into an election but i think that's part of our challenge we clearly have to have the republican leadership both in the house and the senate absolutely committed to identify and pursue any opportunities in the near term to make permanent uh, the tax cuts uh, uh, that were that were enacted uh, several years ago so i think that's our first challenge so looking at the the election results you know optimistically Perhaps both parties might ultimately realize that voters rejected the most radical elements of both parties, and they really want to see bipartisan compromise on key issues. Perhaps this is one. Uh, Of course, you could be a pessimism and say the parties double down on partisanship um, leading up to the 2024 elections, and let's just have a reset then. So I'm I'm hopeful that it's the more optimistic case, and I think making these tax cuts permanent is something that should be bipartisan and and something that i think we should work toward but again i think that the key issue early in, in in the next calendar year is making sure republican leadership uh, publicly realize how important these tax policy issues are versus the other pillars of their of their uh agenda yeah and aubrey i think that's a great point i, I found it very
3: interesting that the tax component of the economic segment of this commitment to america was much less granular than, than some of the other pieces Um, You know, I think in terms of tax policy, Aubrey already talked earlier about the lame duck and potential opportunities with the R&D tax credit, the child tax care credit, and some of the tax extenders that have expired or are expiring. That may be a sign of, if they're able to get that done, that willingness to work bipartisan may continue. It may not happen. We'll have to wait and see. I think the Republicans, it will be, you know, it will be important for them. I know on the individual uh, components of tax reform that will be expiring to try to make those permanent. There will be negotiations with Democrats. Um, I think, as we talked about earlier from a regulatory perspective, there will also be, because both parties are going into this next two years looking at 2024 and trying to kind of pound their chest and promote their policies, I think there will still continue to be, on the Democratic side, a kind of, you know, everybody that's a wealthy American needs to, quote-unquote, pay their fair share. So we may see some regulatory attempts um to try to promote some of those policies both through the budget as Aubrey we talked about earlier and then i noticed that we talked about this pattern at, at an earlier occasion but um one of the priority guidance plan um would were make some updates um to address potentially um some of the grantor trust issues and the tre- their tax treatment and so um pay attention pay very close attention to the regulatory space if we're not able to get tax policies done through legislation kind of incremental gains from the Democrats' perspective on, uh, you know, uh, uh, getting at the wealthiest Americans.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. We know that the Treasury has already tried to eliminate valuation discounts for family-related entities in the past. We fought that off. But that's a really important tool that family businesses use, and not just to avoid tax. That's really not the major objective, is to pass on their business and the succession of their business and the, how it's going to run and, and, and operate uh, to the next generation. So, um, so good point. We need to stay, we need to pay attention to all the agencies as well. Um, So this is the final question. Um, This is around the 2024 election. Any speculation both of you have, I know it's early, but you know, in terms of how you see it going, who's going to run, um, I I appreciate it. And uh, Aubrey, we'll start with you.
2: No, no, thanks, Pat. And, and again, I think if you looked at the, the the last month or so, I think it's fair to say that Governor DeSantis of Florida has, has I think, improved his uh, position in terms of the 2024 nominee on the Republican side. Uh, and I think uh, uh, former President Trump, I know he's going to make a big announcement next week. I think we all can probably figure out what that is. But I think a number of his uh, uh, candidates who he actively and aggressively endorsed did not perform as well. Uh, and I think there might be some elements within the Republican Party leadership that, that view DeSantis as a better candidate going into 2024 than former President Trump. And I'll, just, I'll leave it at that. You also have you know, Governor Sununu. You have uh, Governor Youngkin of, of Virginia. These are, are two candidates who also uh, could, could could receive serious consideration. They've done really good jobs in their in their respective states, and they've also made themselves national candidates. So I think that that's as much as we know right now, in, in my view. But I do think Governor DeSantis. I think um, his position has been significantly improved even over the last month.
3: Yeah. Okay.
1: That's yeah. That's that's good intel. So Brandon, what are your thoughts around the Democrats?
3: You know, the Democrats, I'd say, you know, coming out of the election, Aubrey mentioned that President Biden largely may feel like he has a mandate. So I'd say right now, you know, given the, the significant losses that were cut for the Democrats, you know, the, they were able to maintain a much slimmer majority uh, going into this next election for Republicans. So I would say it's likely President Biden's to lose at this point. You know, I know that there's a lack of enthusiasm. He's not a very popular president right now nationwide. But again, I think that it played out in the polls in his favor. Um, you know, well, So we're going to have to kind of wait and see. Every every indication suggests he is going to run again. Um, but again, that's not a guarantee. So if he does not run, we'll have to see what contenders come out. Obviously, the vice president is a natural candidate. But I'd say that certainly is not a guarantee right now. Um, so if that is the case, if he doesn't run or is not the nominee and it doesn't go to her, I would look to candidates like Gretchen Whitmer in um, Michigan, who just won, the gov- who was reelected to governor. Um, kind of rising national political stars that have not really been on the on the forefront um, across the country, but are, I think are starting to get their names out there um, as potential contenders. But again, I think it's a little bit too early to tell, and we'll have to wait and see. But um, I certainly would never have predicted Donald Trump as president in 2016. We may have a 20, <laughs> I may have a rematch of Biden Trump in 2024, or maybe a bunch of new people. So, <laughs> yeah, is that specific <laughs> enough? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: That's great input from both
3: of you. Pat Saldana to declare her candidacy, but (laughs) I uh, I support it. I I, I would support it.
1: Okay. Well, uh, Brandon and Aubrey, this has been a real pleasure. I really want to thank you for your time. It's been fascinating. I knew it would be fascinating. Uh, I know our family business owners and all of our listeners uh, have learned a lot, and we look forward to having both of you back. Um, So, again, thank you for being on the call.
2: Divided to be with you, Pat. Thank you.
1: We hope you all on this call today like the show and you subscribe to our podcast. Uh, each episode, we discuss in-depth the critical issues that affect multi-generationally owned family businesses. Until next time, thank you all for listening. Thank you for
0: listening to this week's Family Enterprise USA podcast, sponsored by Arbach Commercial Realty Corporation. This is the only series devoted exclusively to the critical issues facing America's family businesses, the families that own them, and family offices. We hope you like this week's show. Please make sure to subscribe and tell others about our podcast. Your voice in Washington, D.C. and throughout the country can make a difference. We look forward to having you listen to us next time.